Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. We've seen that chapters 9 to 11 form a parenthesis, and they really answer the question, what about Israel? Since God is working through the church today, what about his other children? And Paul's answer is that Israel has been set aside. In chapter 9, he told us it was because God chose to set them aside. In verse 15 of that chapter, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In chapter 10, we saw it was because of Israel's unbelief. That chapter ends with God having outstretched arms to a disobedient and obstinate people. And then we come to chapter 11, and he asks the question, well then, is God finished with Israel? And the answer is no. And in verses 1 to 10, he shows us that Israel's rejection is only partial. And then in verses 11 to 36, he shows us that Israel's rejection is only temporary. And both of those sections begin with a question. We saw the first last week. In verse 1, he asked the question, God hasn't rejected his people, has he? And then he answers, no way. And then he gives us three illustrations to prove that. The first is in verse 1. It's Paul himself. He says, I'm an Israelite. The second illustration is in verses 2 to 6, and that's the remnant. From Elijah's day down to the present, God has had his remnant of believing Israelites. And then his third illustration in verses 7 to 10 is that even the fact that the rest of Israel has been hardened was in God's plan from the very beginning. Which brings us to the second question that we want to consider today, and that's in verse 11. Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Now, a, a stumble is temporary. A fall is permanent. Paul says, yes, they've stumbled, but the question is, have they fallen? Have they been completely wiped out? Has God X'd them out of his plan? Is it over for them? Is this thing relative to Israel permanent? And then Paul answers immediately, may it never be. Now this is the tenth time that that little phrase has appeared in the book of Romans. We're getting familiar with it. It's a, it's a strong negative that is parallel to expressions today like, good heavens, no, or no way. And so Paul asks the question, then he gives us the answer right away, and then in the remainder of this chapter, he's going to develop that answer. And we can divide that development into five points. To support the fact that Israel has not been set aside permanently, Paul shows us God's purpose, God's pattern, God's promise, God's perspective, and God's praise. Now we're going to look at the first two this morning. The first is God's purpose in verses 11 to 15. And notice again verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but, or but rather. You see, God's purpose wasn't their permanent fall, but rather, he says, here is God's purpose. And he gives us three purposes of God. The first purpose is Gentile salvation in verse 11. He says, but rather, by their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, prior to the cross, salvation was more or less a Jewish commodity. God has chosen to dwell with Israel. They were his people. 
They had his promises. They had the tabernacle. They had the sacrifices. They had the privileges. You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus was at the well in Samaria, the Samaritan woman asked Jesus an interesting question and one that people often ask today. She said, we worship in this mountain and you people worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? We worship here, you worship there. Who's right? There's lots of religions in the world. Which one is right? Now, she didn't get the answer she hoped for. And she didn't get the answer that most liberal preachers give today. And that is the answer that, you know, God is like on top of a mountain and there are many paths up the mountain and everybody chooses a different path, but they all arrive at the top. Well, that's not what Jesus says in answer to this question. When she asked the question, we, we worship this way, you worship that way, who's right? Here's what Jesus says in John 4, 22. You worship that which you do not know we worship that which, which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, sincere Gentiles understood that. They understood that they had to come under the umbrella of Israel in order to find God. In fact, let me illustrate that. Take your Bible and turn back to the little book of Ruth. kind of hard to find because it's tucked in right before 1 Samuel. Actually, it's hard to find because it's really small. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now those are familiar words. Those are words we hear a lot of times at weddings, and they fit in well at weddings. But if you look carefully, this is not a spouse or a bride saying this to her groom. This is a daughter saying this to her mother-in-law. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was outside of the blessings of God. And Naomi had urged her to go on back to Moab. And this is her response to her mother-in-law. But what I'd like you to notice about this response is, she says, thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Now notice the order there. She has to say, your people will be my people, before she can say, your God will be my God. You see, a change of nationality had to precede a change of, of God because salvation is from the Jews. Then look over to, to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, this is the story of Naaman the leper. Naaman was a Syrian commander who came to Israel to visit Elisha. And you remember, he was told to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and he was delivered of his leprosy. And then down in verse 15, it says, When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. 
But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, verse 17, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no more burn, offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. He comes, he offers a gift to Elisha. Elisha says no, and he says, well, then could I please have two mule loads of dirt? Now, can you imagine this? He gets back home, he's healed of his leprosy, his family's all excited, but the first thing he wants to do is get this dirt off the mule's back and put it in a special spot. Now, I don't know where you would put your dirt. Maybe in his house, depending on his wife, or maybe in some select place. He set up this dirt in that place. And so every time he prayed or every time he offered an offering, just like Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem, he not only prayed toward Jerusalem, but he prayed on promised land soil. And see, what he was saying was, I'm no longer coming to God as a Gentile, but I'm coming to God on the ground, literally, of the covenant of promise. And then look at another illustration. Look over at the book of Esther. That's right before Job. Right after Nehemiah. If you want a trivia question, Esther is the only book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned. And the reason it's written is to describe for us the preservation of Israel. And in, in chapter 8, after Haman was hanged and Mordecai was exalted and the Jews were delivered, notice what it says in verse 16. It says, For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor, and in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and notice, and many among the peoples of the land became Jews. Why did they become Jews? Well, because salvation was from the Jews. But you know, if you read carefully in John chapter 4, Jesus goes on to say to the Samaritan woman, an hour is coming, and now is, when God won't be worshipped in a place. When neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem will God be worshipped, true worshippers will worship Him in spirit and in truth, and these are the people God seeks to be His worshippers. You say, well, why the change from one place to any place? Why the change from one people to any people? Well, the answer is in our passage in Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. It says, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. By the failure and unbelief of Israel, we the Gentiles receive the offer of salvation. You see, when Jesus came, he came offering the kingdom to Israel. In fact, he makes an interesting statement in Matthew eleven fourteen. He says to them, if you would accept it, then John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come. It was prophesied in the book of Malachi that Elijah would come before the kingdom was set up. And Jesus says, I'm offering you the kingdom, and if you'll accept the kingdom, then John the Baptist will fulfill the prophecy of Elijah and will usher the kingdom in. But they rejected. And as a result of their sin and unbelief, we get salvation. 
That's what John 1.11 is saying. It says, He came unto His own, Israel, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. You see, we benefit from Israel's failure. And even after the cross, we find that the gospel goes first to whom? It goes first, goes first to the Jews. In fact, look at one illustration of that. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 46. Paul and Barnabas are preaching to Jews in the city of Antioch. And they refuse to listen. And so, notice what, he, what they say in verse 46. It says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, the Jews. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. You see, our opportunity for salvation is a direct result of Israel's unbelief. And that's the first purpose he gives us here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 11 of Israel's stumble. It was Gentile salvation. Then he gives us a second purpose, and that is Jewish jealousy. Notice the end of verse 11. He says, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. You see, even in redeeming you and me, Israel is still on God's mind. Our salvation is designed in part to move Israel to jealousy so that they might see that we have gained what they have lost. So that their mouths might, in essence, water for the salvation which the Gentiles have received from the Jewish Messiah. Milton Lindbergh, in his book, Witnessing to Jews, said that at a meeting of the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, when asked what aroused them to consider the claims of Christ, 93% said that it was because they had seen the reality of love in some Gentile Christian. And so I guess the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, would the reality of my relationship to God move a Jewish person to jealousy? Or maybe we need to back up and ask an even more preliminary question, and that is, am I even conscious of God's purpose to reach out to lost Israel? You see, Paul was. In fact, look at verse 13, what he says. He says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Paul says, I'm speaking to Gentiles. He's writing to the church at Rome, which was prominently Gentile. And he says, and rightly so, because I am the apostle to the Gentiles. But even as I write to you who are Gentiles, even as I reach out to the Gentiles, he says, I magnify my ministry. I make it as visible as possible. Why? So that the Jews might notice and might become jealous of what's going on and some may come to salvation. And so what is God's purpose? Number one, it's Gentile salvation. Number two, is Jewish jealousy. They didn't respond to God's direct love, and so he's trying to reach them indirectly through us. And then there's a third purpose, and that third purpose 
is world blessing. Notice verse 12. Now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Now this is an if-then equation. If their negative response brought positive results, then how much more blessing is there going to be when they finally come around? If Israel's failure brought us riches, how much more will their fulfillment be? And this is one of those open-ended questions. He doesn't answer it for us. It's kind of like, you ain't seen nothing yet. If if their failure brought us this kind of blessing, what's it going to be like when God finally fulfills His promises to them? What benefit will there then be for the world? And he spells it out a little more clearly in verse 15. He says, For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, if their being rejected brought us from being enemies to being children, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, commentators have struggled over what that phrase means. He says, if their rejection, verse 15, brings us reconciliation, then what will their acceptance bring? And then he says, life from the dead. Now, some have taken that to mean that means spiritual life for the Gentiles. Well, it can't mean that because we've already got spiritual life. Others say, well, it means literally, physically rising from the dead. Well, that is a promise in the future that we will receive at that time. Others apply this to Israel and say, nationally, this is Israel as a nation rising from death to life. That's a possibility. Others take it and apply it to the world because he mentions the world, to the world in general, that this world is going to be taken from a place that is now under the control of Satan to a place that is then under the control of Christ. And as I look at all of those explanations, they all really fit the same timetable. When Israel is established as a nation, the promises of God in the future, we will receive life from the dead and the world will be turned from a place of unrighteousness to righteousness, a place of war to peace, a place of, of, uh, of, of Satan's reign to Christ's reign and a place of world blessing. And so he gives the three purposes in verses 11 to 15. It's threefold. Gentile salvation, Jewish jealousy, and world blessing. And then the second point he gives us is God's pattern in verses 16 to 22. And here Paul gives us two patterns or two illustrations of God's master plan. The first illustration is a lump of dough, which he's not going to develop a whole lot. The second is a tree, which he develops in some detail. First of all, he talks about a lump of dough. Notice verse 16. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. Now that's an illustration that in order to understand it, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Because in Numbers chapter 15, the people of Israel were told that when they went out and got their harvest and they brought in the first fruits of their harvest, they would take the grain and they would make it into a lump of dough. And then out of that big lump of dough, they would take a small piece out and they would make a cake and they would take that cake to the priest and they would consecrate it to the Lord. And what he's saying is if that little piece is holy, set apart, consecrated to the Lord, then the whole lump of dough is also. And then he gives a second illustration, that's a tree in verse 16. Continuing, he says, and if the root is holy, 
then the branches are too. Now he's on a tree. He says, if you've got a tree and you've got holy roots, then you're going to have holy branches. And then developing it further in verse 17, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now you've got a tree, you've got a, a holy roots, and holy branches. And then he says, some of the branches are broken off, and he goes out to a wild olive tree, and he takes some branches off that wild olive tree, and he grafts them into the cultivated tree. And he says, those wild olive branches now take part of the holy root. Got the picture? Do I need to explain it? Well, he tells us who the wild olive branches are because he says in verse 17, it's you. And who's he writing to? Church at Rome. So, so the wild olive branches are the Gentiles. When we understand that the wild olive branches are the Gentiles, then we can conclude that the good branches or the holy branches originally are, that's Israel. Israel has been broken off. Uh, that, that's the same thing he said earlier in this chapter in verse 7 when he said uh, that the rest were hardened. Israel has been broken off. Israel is symbolized by the olive tree. That's an Old Testament symbol. They are the olive tree. So here you got the tree. The branches are Israel. We are the wild olive branches that are grafted in after they're broken off. You say, well, who is the root well, what is the root of Israel? That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones to whom the promises were made. So the illustration is really rather simple. He's saying some of the branches of Israel have been broken off. We, the Gentiles, wild olive branches, have been grafted in. Now, some writers have gone to great length to point out that wild branches usually don't get grafted onto cultivated olive trees. I'm not an expert in this. But it, it's usually, you take a cultivated branch and you put it on a cultivated tree, or you take a cultivated branch and you put it on a wild tree, but you don't take a wild branch it doesn't bear fruit and never has borne fruit, and stick it on a cultivated tree. In fact, one commentator, C.H. Dodd, I don't recommend that you read him, made these smug remarks about the Apostle Paul's supposed ignorance in this area. He said, Paul had the limitations of a town-bred man. He didn't even have the curiosity to inquire what went on in the olive yards which fringed every road on which he walked. Now that guy missed the point. In fact, that guy missed more than the point. You see, Paul explains what's going on when we get down to verse 24. Notice verse 24. He says, For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. See, Paul says this is contrary to nature. Paul was fully aware that what he was describing here was unnatural. But that's his exact point. 
You see, he's making the point that for God to leave his commitment to Israel and go out and get us, the Gentiles, is totally unnatural. It's the unexpected thing that God has done. And that's exactly his point in this analogy. And now Paul says to us, after making the analogy, after we understand it, now he says we need to learn a lesson from God's horticulture. You see, when you are a wild olive branch grafted into God's cultivated tree, two attitudes should prevail in your life. Number one is humility. Notice verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You may be saying, well, you know, we're better than Israel because we're in and they're out. Well, Paul says, if you have that kind of arrogance, you need to remember who supports who. You see, your blessing as a Gentile believer is rooted in the covenant to Abraham. God said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. We are wild olive branches. We, I mean, we, we don't come into the tree with limbs full of fruit. We are wild. We are unproductive. We have nothing to contribute to the salvation process. You see, when you think about the Gentile nations, an Asian doesn't come in contributing a little bit of yin and yang. An African doesn't come in contributing a little bit of his tribal superstition. An Indian doesn't come in contributing a little bit of spiritism. An American doesn't come in contributing a little bit of democracy or capitalism. Paul says in verse 17, Gentiles are a wild olive, one of the most worthless of all trees. You see, we have nothing to contribute toward our salvation, and therefore we have nothing to be proud about. The only way that we can come to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that has come to us through the roots of Judaism. And then he says in verse 19, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And in the original language, that word I is emphatic. So this is, this is a pride statement. Branches were broken off so that I, I, might come in. And Paul says in verse 20, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited. Paul says that's true, but why was Israel broken off? Because of unbelief. And why do you stand? Because of faith. You see, it's not that you're better than Israel. It's not that Israel is worse than you. It's that they didn't believe and you did. And when you talk about faith, there is no room in faith for arrogance. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, if you're boasting, you're not believing. Because when we boast, we boast about what we have done. When we believe, we believe in what Jesus has done. And so the first attitude of a wild olive branch 
is humility. And then there's a second attitude, and that is fear. Notice the end of verse 20. He says, do not be conceited, but fear. Fear what? Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. If God didn't spare the natural branches, why would He spare wild olive branches? Now let me help you understand this verse. He's not talking here about individual Christians. What he's talking about in this passage is Israel as a nation and the Gentiles collectively. If he says here, if you mess up, I'm going to cut you off, that is a contradiction of everything he already told us in chapter 8. And that really defeats his whole purpose for writing chapters 9 to 11 because his point in writing chapters 9 to 11 is to show us that God keeps his promises. So now he's not saying if you as an individual mess up, God's going to chop you off. That's not his point. His point is that God cut off Israel as a nation and he will cut off the Gentile nations as well. And then beyond that, he's not talking specifically here about salvation. What he's talking about here is the place of privilege, the place of blessing. In fact, if you go back to verse 16, he uses that word holy. He says the branches are holy. Now what does holy mean? Holy means set apart. It doesn't mean saved. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that inanimate objects are said to be holy. Pots and pans were holy in the Old Testament. In verse 16, it says the dough was holy. In fact, the best example of this is probably in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. It says an unbelieving spouse is holy if he's married to a believer. He says an unbeliever can be holy, not saved, but set apart into a place of privilege because they're married to a believer. They're in a home of blessing even though they're not a believer. They're in that place of privilege, that place of blessing. And so he says Israel was holy, not saved. They were set apart. And who were they set apart from? They were set apart from us, the Gentiles. God told them in the Old Testament, don't intermarry with those people. Don't even eat with those people. Stay away from those people. They were set apart from us and they were set apart unto God. Israel was naturally in the place of blessing. They were cut off because of unbelief. And the Gentiles, we the Gentiles, were moved unnaturally into that place of blessing. And so the question is, how do you expect to stay there in unbelief? And then we come to verse 22, and he kind of wraps up this point. He says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. He's saying, I want you to understand that God is a severe God and God is a kind God. You are now experiencing the kindness of God. Enjoy that privilege, but don't take advantage of it because you, like Israel, can also be cut off. Now, that's a strong warning. How do we apply that? Well, I think one way we apply that, and probably the prominent way we can apply that today, is to our Gentile nation, the United States. We have the privilege of living in a country that was established on faith in God. This is a place of great privilege. 
And it still says on our dollar bill, in God we trust. I saw a a poll taken, Barna poll the other day. He polled Americans and he asked the question, do you think that truth comes only from logic, human reasoning, and personal experience rather than the revelation of God? And 54% of Americans said yes. I think truth comes only from what I think, what I reason, and what I experience rather than the written word of God. We live in a country that has abused that privilege. We live in a country full of unbelief, pride, idolatry, sexual perversion, abortion. I want to tell you something this morning. We have no guarantee from God that we will remain in a place of blessing. God says, if you take that for granted, I will cut you off. We can apply it to our nation today. We can also apply it to the professing church today. You know, the first major area of the Gentile world to be evangelized was Asia Minor. Paul went there and he established churches in Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Ephesus. And then out of Ephesus, the gospel spread to cities like Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. If you lived in the first century, you would be saying, Asia Minor is a hotbed for evangelism in the Gentile world. Just like many people will say today, America is a hotbed for evangelism to the Gentiles in the modern world. But you know what? If you want to go out as a missionary today, and you want to go to perhaps the most virgin territory for the gospel in all the world, you know where you would choose to go? You would probably choose to go to Turkey, which is modern-day Asia Minor. The place of so much privilege and blessing in the first century is now spiritually a barren place. And God is saying, the place of privilege that you presently enjoy as Gentiles in relationship to the gospel could end. And so there's the pattern. An olive tree, the place of privilege. The sons of Israel have been cut off. The Gentiles had been grafted in. And Paul is saying, you need to learn a lesson from horticulture. Number one, humility. Wild branches grafted in have no right to be conceited. And number two is fear. Wild branches grafted in can easily be cut off. And then let me close this morning by applying this personally. See, what this means is, if, if you could trace your roots back far enough, every one of you, or almost every one of you sitting here today is a Philistine or an Amorite or a Hittite or a Canaanite. We are the ones that God told Israel to stay away from. We are the ones that when Israel went into a land, God said, I want you to wipe them out completely off the face of the earth. That's who we are. We are a wild olive tree out in the forest somewhere, far from the blessings of God. But what has God done in his design plan? Through Israel's rejection and unbelief, he has gone out and gotten us 
and he's brought us into a place of privilege. We have the privilege today to hear the gospel proclaimed. And the application of this passage is, as you hear the gospel proclaimed, don't take that opportunity lightly. You need to humble yourself. You need to be fearful that this may be your last opportunity. And you need to come in simple childlike faith to Jesus Christ. That's the invitation to this passage. You are in a place of blessing, a place of privilege. God is still reaching out His arms to you. The question is, are you going to be disobedient and obstinate? Are you going to humble your heart and come to Him? We're going to close the service today with an invitation inviting you to make that decision today to come to Christ. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. They're going to lead us in a song. As they're singing, if God has spoken to your heart today about your relationship to Christ, then I invite you to come forward today, and I'd be happy to pray with you and show you how you can come to commit your life today to Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we sing in closing.